You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. My name is Larry, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Village Church. I'm really glad to have the privilege to be preaching to you today. Last week, we started a new sermon series, and it was titled, it's titled, Jacob, the Struggle for Wholeness. And during this time, we're going to go through the life of Jacob, as recorded in the Bible, Genesis 25 to 35. And uh, we're talking about this person, Jacob, who is this conflicted character. Uh, he spends much of his life manipulating people, manipulating situations to try to fix the brokenness in his life, um, to struggle to obtain blessing and wholeness. And throughout this series, we'll be drawing parallels between Jacob's life and our life. And today's sermon is titled, Like Father, Like Son. And we're covering Genesis 26, and one thing that's interesting about Genesis 26 is Jacob doesn't show up at all. So it's kind of interesting uh, because the sermon series is about Jacob, but we're not going to be talking so much about Jacob. And, but we're, instead, we're going to talk about Isaac. Um, last week, Pastor Dan covered uh, Genesis 25, which talked about how Isaac and Rebekah, the father and mother of the family, had two kids, Esau and Jacob. And uh, Isaac loved Esau. And Rebecca loved Jacob, so there was this favoritism going on, and there was this little feud in which uh, uh, Jacob deceived his brother Esau by trading him some lentil stew for the family birthright. And that, uh, on Esau's part, that would be called bad decision-making, and that's what happened. Um, and so this narrative uh, of Genesis 25 is filled with um, uh, family dysfunction. You have favoritism, deception, manipulation. Manipulation, And naturally, if you take out chapter 26, 25 actually flows into 27 pretty well. Because 27 continues a narrative of the dysfunction of the family, and especially between Jacob and Esau. Um, but Genesis 26 is here, and it sort of interrupts the narrative, and it focuses instead on the person of Isaac, the father of the family. Um, so what's interesting in this chapter um, is that the events of this chapter are strangely uh, paralleling certain events that happened to Isaac's own father, Abraham. And they're also strangely paralleling um, some future events that will happen in the life of Jacob. So this chapter 26 sort of serves as a link between the life of Abraham, the grandfather of the family, and the life of Jacob. And in, in, in many ways, we'll see that Isaac is like Abraham, and we'll see that Jacob is like Isaac. And um, as the saying goes, like father, like son. Let's start from verse 1. We're going to go through this chunk by chunk. Verse 1, now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So there's this famine, and this first line reminds us that um, there was a famine in the days of Abraham. And so it's pointing out, I want you to recall the life of Abraham. That's what the author is trying to do. So verse 2, and the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. And this is interesting because when there was a famine in Abraham's day, Abraham went down to Egypt. He says, don't go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. And he reminds him again, this is, I'm paralleling what happened with Abraham. I will multiply your offspring 
as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So this is actually the first recorded time in the Bible in which God speaks to Isaac. God spoke to Abraham several times and this is the first time we see God speaking to Isaac and we see clearly that God is echoing the promises he made to Abraham. A lot, of this, a lot of these sentences are almost word for word promises that God had already given to Abraham. And I think what uh, God is saying is that just as I told Abraham that I would bless him, multiply his offspring, that, that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, I will also bless you in those same ways. And surely when Isaac was growing up, Abraham would probably tell him stories about all the promises God made to him. And Isaac is probably now recognizing, oh wow, these promises that God gave to Abraham, I have the opportunity to have those promises too. And so God is allowing him to, in a sense, pick up where his father left off, and he's making it clear to Isaac, you have this opportunity to walk in the path of blessing just as Abraham did. And so Isaac is going to potentially be like his father. And I want to point out one phrase that's sort of interesting in this covenant, which is in verse 3, God says, I will be with you. I will be with you. And this is interesting because God actually never said this phrase to Abraham, but he says this to Isaac, and he will repeat this throughout this chapter, and he will say this multiple times to Jacob. And so this is a promise that Isaac will need to hold on to, that God will be with him. So what happens next? Verse 6, let's keep reading. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. In other words, they were doing things that only a couple would do. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So this section here um, is actually one of three, what I like to call, uh, wife-sister narratives in the book of Genesis. So there are these wife-sister narratives in the book of Genesis. Three times you have this main character. He goes to a foreign land where there's this foreign ruler. He's afraid for his life. And so he tells his wife, say, don't say you're my wife. Say you're my sister. And that happens three times in the book of Genesis. Um, it happens to Abraham in Genesis 12 when the famine happened. He went down to Egypt and, uh, with Pharaoh. He told Pharaoh, this is my sister. It happened again to Abraham in Genesis chapter 20 in the land of Gerar to a person named Abimelech. Did the same exact thing, and it happens here again in Genesis 26, where Isaac follows in his father's footsteps. It's the very same thing that his father did, also conveniently in the land of Gerar, also to a person named Abimelech. And so we have these three uh, wife-sister stories, and um, maybe if you're not familiar with this story, you might wonder what in the world is going on. Why would someone lie about the identity of his wife? Well, um, it might be sort of unfamiliar with us, but uh, it, Isaac explains why in verse 7. He says, When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah. Because she was attractive in appearance. So 
Um, so what would, so during this time, uh, what would often happen is if you were married to um, a culturally attractive woman, and if there was someone in power, okay, who uh, uh, wanted to be with that woman, and if you were not very significant in this powerful person's eyes, that person could kill you off. So that person could be with you, that woman. And in fact, this happened actually um, in later in the Bible with King David. King David saw a woman, and uh, this woman was married to someone else, so King David killed him off. And, and so that was a really legitimate fear that a lot of people had, especially when they were in foreign places where they don't know too many people. They were afraid, oh, this foreign ruler could kill me off in order to have my wife. Um, on the other hand, if you, there was a woman uh, who, was, who, who you, was with you and that person was your sister, potentially that was advantageous um, if that person was attractive in this time period because then a person would come and try to marry that woman and give you gifts. And, and so you could actually get some economic gain by uh, having your sister married off to someone who was powerful. And that, this actually happened to Rebecca herself, um, uh, Isaac's wife. When, um, when Abraham's servant, this is a previous story, a few chapters before, uh, went to find Rebecca, the text says that, uh, that he gave costly ornaments to Rebecca's brother, Laban. And so, so this is a, a very common thing in this day when you, it's kind, of, it's kind of foreign to us now, but in those days, if you were to marry someone, you would give gifts to that person's family. And so that would happen. So Isaac, it was to his advantage to say, this wife is actually my sister, so don't kill me and give me gifts instead. And so that was essentially his strategy. Um, and, he's, and he's doing that because he's afraid for his life. He's afraid for his life. Um, and he's thinking, well, there's this thing my dad used to do when he was in his foreign land. He would lie about it, the identity of his wife. So I'll try that too, and I'll see if it works. And it sort of works, but it was shady because essentially what he was doing was he was protecting his own skin at the cost of his bride. He was essentially saying, this is the person I'm married to, and I'm going to make her available to other powerful men so that I can be safe and secure and established. And so... In the biblical narrative, we would see this, and we would say this was wrong. And we would say that Isaac, in this scenario, God had just promised him he was going to make him fruitful and multiply, right? And, uh, I mean, if he was going to trust in God's promises, he knew that God was going to protect his life. But he chose to manipulate the situation, to take matters in his own hands. And he chose to not be better than his father Abraham, but he chose to follow in his father's footsteps. So just as Abraham was afraid for his life, and, and lied about the identity of his wife, Isaac did the same exact thing. Isaac was no better than his father. Isaac lies about his wife's identity, potentially inviting other people to sleep with her so that he could save his own skin and maybe even get some costly ornaments out of it. You see, Isaac, he, he knew that God was going to bless him, but instead of trusting in God, he decided to manipulate the situations in order to to try to get little blessings from other people. And this action of uh, manipulating the situation in order to get blessings, despite the fact that you are promised eternal blessings from God, that actually happened just in the very last chapter too. Jacob, you know, there was a prophecy. He was going to receive the blessings of the family, but he manipulated the situation in order to steal the birthright from Esau. And he does the same exact thing, well, as we find out next week, uh, and when he steals the father's blessings from Esau. And I want to propose that's what we often do too. 
We all do the same thing. Uh, We as Christians, God has guaranteed us, as the book of Ephesians says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's pretty tremendous. That's pretty awesome. But we still go about day to day manipulating situations to try to get little earthly blessings here and there. Our misplaced desires for worldly blessings blind us from the fact that we have already been guaranteed eternal heavenly blessings. And that's the story of our lives, that even though God has given us so much, we are blinded from that fact by our desires to get these little things, to bicker over these little things. And so that's the story of Isaac, that's the story of Jacob, and that's the story of our lives. It's a sad story because this whole thing eventually turns itself on his head. Because, because get this, so Isaac, he asks Rebekah to pretend she was somebody she wasn't in order to deceive Abimelech, right? Isaac, he asks Rebekah, be someone you're not, let's deceive Abimelech. And the very next chapter, Rebekah asks her son Jacob to pretend he is somebody he's not in order to deceive Isaac. And we'll find that out in the next chapter. And later, later, okay, Jacob, he goes on the run. I'm going to, this is a spoiler alert, but I'm just going to tell it to you. Jacob runs into this guy named uh, Laban, and he tries to get with Laban's daughter, Rachel. And Laban asks his daughter, Leah, to pretend like she is somebody she is not in order to deceive Jacob. So this whole Jacob story, this whole Jacob story is just a story after story after story of people deceiving one another. People manipulating one another. People trying to get stuff out of one another by manipulating situations. It gets pretty wild. And, and if you're not familiar with those stories, I encourage you to, to read those stories. I encourage you to come back on Sunday and, and find out about these stories. It's, it's really wild. It's kind of like uh, Scandal, the TV show. It, it, it's story after story of people just stabbing one another in the back. And, but I think the author of Genesis, he intentionally does this. He, he, he talks about all these things, intentionally lines these stories up to see, to get you to see that deception and manipulation rule the day. Deception and manipulation are everywhere in the story. The storyline is filled with sin through and through. In fact, the whole book of Genesis, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, is filled with story after story after story of people who deceive one another, manipulate one another, sin against one another. It's a story after story after story of of hurt people who hurt other people, broken people who break other people, victimized people who victimize other people. And that's the story of today. That's the story of today. We're no better than the people of Genesis. This cycle of sin has continued on until the present day, and we live in a world in which we are also broken. We've inherited brokenness, and we pass on brokenness. It's like we all have these contagious diseases, and we're just constantly rubbing into one another. We're constantly passing on these diseases to one another, constantly infecting one another, and the cycle of sin just goes round and round and round. But let's go back to the story because it doesn't end there. Verse 12, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So remember, there's a famine going on. Okay, during famines, you don't reap much. You don't, the, your harvest isn't very good. But somehow, Isaac is reaping a, a hundredfold harvest. Why? The text says, because God has blessed him. And this is very strange 
because Isaac just did something that was against God's will, and still God blessed him. And so much so that Abimelech said, you can't be here anymore. So let's keep reading verse 17. We'll get back to this blessing later. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. So Abraham, back in the day, he had dug these wells. The Philistines had filled up these wells. Isaac was digging them up again. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek because they contend with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna and he moved from there, dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he named its name Rehoboth, different from Rehoboth, Delaware, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful. That's God's promise originally, right? That you should be fruitful. We shall be fruitful in the land. So you have this well-claiming uh, competition going on. And this sounds kind of weird to us, maybe, because most of us don't go around digging wells. Uh, I've never dug a well myself. Uh, but back in those days, wells were really important. They served two big purposes. One, they gave you water. And especially during times of famine, you need water. So it's really important to have wells. And two, in a sense, they marked your territory. They marked your, the boundaries of your land. So you would build a well, and you would say, I built this well. It's kind of like people, you know, the, the European colonists, they would stake a flag in the ground. They'd say, this is my land. Building a well is sort of like your way of saying, I built this, so this area is mine. And so when Abraham dug these wells back in the day, and it says, you can read it on your own a few chapters before, he dug these wells, and he made a little covenant with Abimelech, and they established, okay, these are your wells, you own these places. Okay, Abraham was essentially claiming these lands for himself, but afterwards, when Abimelech's servants were filling up these wells, that was sort of their way of saying, this is our turf now. You don't, you're not entitled to these lands anymore. That was their way of, of saying that. And so when Isaac is going around now, he's trying to reclaim these wells. He's trying to dig, up, dig them up again. And he is intentionally giving them the same names his father gave them. What Isaac is doing is he's trying to reclaim the land. And he's trying to reclaim, he's, he's saying, God promised these lands to Abraham. Abraham took these steps to claim these lands by building these wells. I want to take these back. I want to claim once more the promises given to Abraham. In other words, I want to be like my father. I want to be like my father. God gave these promises to Abraham. He took these steps of initiative. God gave these promises to me. I want to do the same exact thing. It's kind of like um, the movie Lion King. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies. You know, in Lion King, you know, Mufasa dies, right? That's Long Live the King, that whole thing. And then Simba runs away. That's Lion, uh, Mufasa's son. That's a whole Hakuna Matata deal. And then Mufasa uh, uh, appears to him in the blue cloud. And then he, he runs back home. And his mission is he wants to take the land back. He wants to take the land back. And that's what Isaac is thinking right now. I've left this land. The, well, the wells are filled up. I'm going to come back. I'm going to open these wells up again. I'm going to take this land back. So Isaac is on this mission of reclaiming these territories that God had promised him because he knows that he has this covenant. He knows it's rightfully his because Abraham made this covenant with Abimelech. But he's having difficulty because every time he digs up these wells, these people come along and they argue with him. But what does Isaac do? He just, he says, okay, you can have it, and he goes somewhere else. And they quarrel with him. He says, okay, you can have it. I'll go somewhere else. And notice 
Isaac's personality here in this chapter. He's a conflicted person because on the one hand, he wants to do what's right. He wants to walk in the blessings of his father, the blessings promised by God. He wants to reclaim this land, but on the other hand, he's timid and afraid. He's afraid for his life, which is why he told his, he made up this lie that his wife was his sister. And when Abimelech told him to leave, he left. He didn't put up a fight, he just left. And he's going around digging up these wells, but these people are, they're quarreling with him over these wells, so he leaves again, over and over and over. He's timid. He doesn't know how to handle conflict. But then, God appears to him again. Verse 23, For from there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. He reminds him again, I'm the same God. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his name, his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So God repeats some of his same promises, and he says, Fear not. Fear not. Don't be afraid of Abimelech. Don't be afraid of these Philistines. Don't be afraid of these herdsmen. Fear not. Why? For I am with you. Remember that God said that earlier? For I will be with you. Now he says again, I am with you. And Isaac needed this reminder because he's going to have one more big showdown, which sort of is the ultimate test. Okay, verse 26. When Abimelech, the same guy he was afraid of before, right, the same guy he, 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 he sent him away and ran away from him, Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor and fickle, the commander of his army, and Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me, you have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Right? God has promised, I'm going to be with you. Even these outsiders, these, these Philistines, they recognize that too. We see the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oats, and Isaac sent them, all, sent them on their way, and they departed him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. And what I want you to notice here is the shift in power dynamics between this story and the story that just happened a few verses earlier. And this story actually, it foreshadows the story of Jacob and Laban, in which there's also a shift of power dynamic, but we'll get there another week. But check this out. So before, Isaac, he was deathly afraid of his life, okay? He's deathly afraid of his life, that he came up with this lie, and Abimelech sent him away, so he was sent away. And now, Abimelech is afraid for his life. Do you catch that? Abimelech is so afraid that he traveled this long distance to go to Isaac, and he said, let's make this covenant of peace so that you will do us no harm. Isaac is out in the middle of nowhere minding his own business, and Abimelech travels this long distance just to make this covenant of peace with him because he's afraid that Isaac's getting too powerful. He's afraid that Isaac can do him harm, so he wants to be ahead of the game. So he comes over to Isaac, and he establishes his covenant of peace with Isaac, and, and he's here not with this posture of aggression and contention like these herdsmen. He doesn't want to take away Isaac's wells. He's coming with this posture of humility and of peace. And why is that? Because Abimelech, uh, he notices, he realizes, verse 28, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. And he also says in verse 30, you are now the blessed of the Lord. 
And so this is an amazing shift of power dynamics. And Isaac, I think he's realizing, he's realizing when I put my trust in God, when I choose to fear no one but God alone, he works things out. He works things out. When God is with you, all fear is gone. And Isaac realizes, I no longer have to fear these people. These people who are trying to take away my wife, take away my life, take away my property, take away my wealth. I no longer have to fear them because God is with me. And what's also interesting is they eat together and they eat Isaac's food. And that's, that's, that's amazing because earlier, earlier they had this big contention and they were like, oh, we, you have too much stuff, you're getting too powerful, you've got to go away. And Isaac willingly allows these people to eat of his food. And it's a small foreshadowing of this promise that through Isaac, all the nations will be blessed. Through Isaac, through this family, all the nations will be blessed. Even people like Abimelech, who are enemies of God. And the story ended there. It would seem complete. It would seem it would come full circle. You have this guy Isaac. He was afraid. He was a, uh, God made promises to him, but he's afraid. He does some unfortunate. Uh, uh, he makes some unfortunate decisions. God appears to him again. He reminds him, "Fear not." He has this amazing redemptive story. But then the chapter ends on sort of a weird note, and that's verse thirty-four. When Esau was forty years old. He took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And this seems kind of random, but I think it's here for a reason. And I think it's meant to show that Isaac, even though he experienced this redemption, his family was still not complete. There was still brokenness. And, um, and one thing you should know is when Isaac was 40, when Isaac himself was 40, Abraham, his father, sent his servant out to this faraway land of Mesopotamia because Abraham realized, I don't want my son Isaac marrying one of the Canaanites because the Canaanites, they were evil. The Hittites, by the way, are Canaanites. The the Canaanites are evil, so I'm going to send my my servant out to this faraway land to find a good wife for Isaac. That sounds kind of bizarre to us. Most of us were not big fans of arranged marriages. But back then, okay, arranged marriage, a father who set up an arranged marriage was a father who loved his son. Because this father was willing to go the distance to make sure that his son had a great wife, a great future, a great family. But here, we don't have any evidence that Isaac went out of his way to find a wife for his sons. We don't see that. And Esau's 40 years old, the same age Isaac was when he got married. And all it says was that Esau found two Hittite women. The same exact people whom Abraham would not have wanted for his son Isaac. So in other words, unlike his father Abraham, who arranged a woman for Isaac to marry, Isaac chose to be passive. He chose not to find a son for his, uh, not to find wives for his sons. And as a result, Esau found two wives on his own among the Canaanites. And as we can see, they made life bitter for the whole family. So in this chapter, we see this conflicted person of Isaac. He does some good things, but he does some bad things. He makes some good decisions. He makes some bad decisions. And, but I think at the core, what we notice is this whole chapter is basically the story of Isaac trying to follow in the footsteps of his father Abraham and doing so with mixed results. Sometimes he does it. Sometimes he doesn't. 
And we'll see later that Jacob does the exact same thing. Jacob sometimes succeeds in following in the footsteps of his fathers and grandfather, uh, and sometimes he doesn't. Jacob unfortunately learns a lot of the sins from his father Isaac. He sees Isaac being deceptive against Abimelech, and he learns this, and he chooses in the very next chapter to be deceptive to his own father Isaac. But in the midst of the chapter of deception, quarreling, and struggle, in the midst of this brokenness, we see one thing that's consistent, and that's God. God is consistent all throughout this whole book, this whole chapter. In the beginning, he promises blessing. He promises to be with Isaac. And even when Isaac sins, he turns his back. God again promises blessing. He promises to be with Isaac. And I think that's the lesson of the story. That even though we fail, God will never fail. Even though we fall short, God will never fall short. Even when we are not able to live up to our promises, God still lives up to his promises. This whole story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is just people after people after people doing the wrong thing. Sometimes doing the right thing, but mostly doing the wrong thing. And you see the character of God being faithful all throughout. We know today that God can keep his promises because he kept his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This blessing that God promises to them has now been guaranteed to us, the church, through Jesus. Jesus was the one and only unbroken man. Jesus was the one and only person who lived this life of wholeness because he was the Son of God. And just as God the Father was perfect, God the Son was perfect, like Father, like Son. But Jesus chose to do something that at the surface seemed utterly ridiculous and foolish, which was at the end of his life, he chose, the unbroken man chose to be broken for us. By dying on the cross for our sins so that we, the broken, can become unbroken. That we, the broken, can be made whole. And this invitation is yours. Jesus says to every man and woman, follow me. Stop following in the footsteps of all of these broken people left and right who fill the world ever since the day of Adam. Stop following in the footsteps of your broken fathers and mothers and heroes and pastors and mentors and teachers follow me maybe you're here today and whether you're new to christianity or maybe you've grown up in church all your life you look at your life and you realize your life is marked by brokenness and maybe it's because your whole life has been filled with broken role models broken parents broken employers broken government officials everybody in your life has been broken and the cycle goes round and round just like Isaac following a broken father just like Jacob following a broken father we're doing the same thing and all that's done is left you broken and if that's you hear the voice of Jesus who says follow me and I will make you whole you don't have to be like your earthly fathers whether literal fathers or metaphorical fathers. You don't have to continue the cycle of broken people following in the footsteps of broken people because Jesus will make you like your heavenly father. 
You don't have to be like your earthly fathers because Jesus will make you like your heavenly father. Right now, we'll be moving into a time of communion and confession. Uh, We have this jar on the middle of the table during this Lent season. If you'd like, during this time, uh, you can walk up on either side of the aisle. There's some pieces of paper and some pens, and this is your time for you to confess your sins. And no one will read these pieces of paper, but you just write down an area in which you experience brokenness. Maybe it's something that you've done. Maybe it's something, just an area of brokenness someone has caused for you. And uh, maybe it's something that brings you fear, just like Isaac was afraid. Maybe it's a way you've deceived something or manipulated somebody, just like Isaac did. Maybe there's a relationship in your life in which you experience contention and quarreling, just like Isaac and these herdsmen. Whatever it is, write it down on this card, fold it up, and when you come to the communion table, before you take communion, you can drop it off in the jar. But regardless of whether or not you want to physically write something down, I I invite you, if you are a follower of Jesus, to participate in communion by coming up to this table, taking the bread that represents Jesus' body, broken for you that we might be made whole, dipping it in the grape juice which represents Jesus' blood shed for us, and eating it right there. And when you do that, I encourage you to remember, no matter what you did this past week, no matter what you're doing right now, no matter what you will do in the future, remember that God is with you. And he is with you because Jesus at the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have have you forsaken me? And because God forsake Jesus on the cross, he promises to be with you just as he was with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He will be with you. Let's stand up as we pray. Help us, God. God, our lives are filled with so much brokenness, and we want to confess that before you. We want to confess our sins. We want to confess our brokenness. We want to confess all of the times our desires for earthly blessings surpassed our realization that we have heavenly blessings. We confess our desires to follow anyone and everyone but you. And God, all of our lives have been marked with so much pain and suffering, and a lot of it is attributed to the fact that we are following broken people. God, we thank you. We thank you that you offer hope and change. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that Jesus chose to be broken, that we might be made whole. And God, we thank you for the church. Thank you that this church is this beautiful mosaic of broken people coming together to make this gathering of whole people. Whole not because of anything we've done, not because of anything that, that, that we can do, but because Jesus makes us whole. So may we be like you. May we not be like all of these broken people around us, left and right, that let us down, just so that we can let down other people around us. But may we be like you. May we follow Jesus. May we be your image bearers. May we be new creations. And may our church, the village church here in Baltimore, collectively display your glory to one another, to Baltimore, and to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.